from the empire of lies, a bastion of free speech, truth, and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the new world order under Joe Biden. I'm Lee Stranahan, and it's a Truth Tuesday as we're joined by guest co-host Jason Goodman on The Backstory. Hey, Jason, how are you doing today? Great, Lee. How are you? I'm doing well. So we have a good show today, as usual. As always. But Ross yeah. put together a great show. In the first hour, we're talking to the great Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies in Washington, D.C. And we'll be talking about one aspect of the mess the New World Order has created worldwide, which is the immigration crisis. Then in the second hour, we're scheduled to have Tyler Nixon. And we love talking to Tyler about a variety of subjects, including the recent revelations about Joe Biden. I haven't talked about it yet, but the people who had his daughter's diary, you saw pled guilty. Did you see that? Yes, I I meant to talk to you about that. And and uh, let me, if, if I say the people who had Joe Biden's daughter's diary and exposed what was in it were forced to plead guilty because I actually don't think they they did anything wrong. They did not yeah. steal the diary. They found it. Right. Yeah. She after she, do you agree? Yes. I mean if you walk into a hotel room or a whatever that was, B and B and uh, something is there that's it's abandoned, so it's yours. Well, if you walk into a hotel room and there's a diary there and the last name on it is by Biden and it's anything about their sex life in the diary, <laughs> you probably want to walk away. Check out immediately. Probably. Call the front desk. Yeah. So that's the show More today. Tells. And of course, we're taking calls from you. 202-521-1320 from our great family of callers. Or if you're a first-time caller, join the family. Hey, Jason? Yeah. And yeah, it's not absolutely. the Biden family. If you no. call in, we will not shower with you. Jason and I at no, no. point will get in a shower with you. Well, and that's coming up today. Single female and really attractive, I leave it open. <laughs> but, but I don't, don't stop females from calling, Jason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so we got more coming up on Backstory. So a few headlines and a few thoughts. One of the headlines is, I know you've probably been sad. You're thinking to yourself, Jason, you know what? I haven't had a speech from Joe Biden to lift my spirits. Well, you don't have to wait much longer because he's doing one on Thursday night. Uh, I thought it was supposed to be today. No, no. This new speech, he's planning it. And he he says— I could be wrong, but what seemed to me is Thursday. And he says, whenever it is, it is a speech about saving the soul of the nation. Do you want Joe Biden anywhere near your soul? No. I would say he's not good, judging by Hunter Biden and Ashley Biden. He doesn't do people's souls any good. Is no, that fair? I wouldn't to order. Say? Yeah, I, I don't want to order a fillet of soul. From Joe Biden. A good one. Uh, But apparently this is going to be about (laughs) 
another word he's given a dirty word to, democracy. And yeah. I'll talk about why democracy's got a dirty word and the overall technique there. What I see the technique is, is a switcheroo technique. Basically, they take something good. Okay? So do you yeah. understand, like, democracy? If you'd ask anybody 10 years ago, is democracy good? You say yes. Answer? Yes. Is racism yeah. bad? Yes. Yes. Those seem easy, but let's use those two examples. They have given, or is fascism bad? Uh, yeah. So if I told you 10 years ago, there would be a group of citizens called Antifa that are anti-fascist. That sounds pretty good on paper, right? Yeah, surface level, yes. But if I said what they're going to do is they're going to commit violence against citizens for using free speech, you'd say, wait a minute. Yeah. That is not anti-fascism. That is right. the definition of fascism, right, Jason? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and also isn't there some component of fascism where the government is controlling companies, like maybe telling Twitter, kick Jason Goodman off of there? Well, controlling companies, yes. They, they like to call it being in partnership with them. Right. But it's a partnership where they're, they're the government and you do what they say. Right. <laughs> So I, that, that's why I call it a switcheroo. What they do is they take a phrase, you know, for instance, women, and they use reduction it act. in a new definition. Yeah. What, what you say, like Jason? You know, Inflation Reduction Act or something like that. Right. Exactly right. Now, Increase inflation. <laughs> in European headlines, Tucker Carlson had a great piece on his show last night. It did, dealt for about 10 minutes with what a disaster is in for Europe. And yeah. we've been talking about that on this show for months. I'll repeat again. This show keeps you ahead of the curve. It keeps you ahead of the news cycle. And you want to be ahead of this news cycle because it's a dangerous one. Agreed? I think yes. So let's play the clip of Tucker talking about what is about to befall Europe. Hit it. So they call it biomass, but it's wood. They're burning wood again, as they did during the feudal period. That's Germany. In Poland, families are standing in line for days to buy coal. Not in 1910, right now, tonight. Cars queued up outside coal mines hoping for fuel. Quote, this is beyond imagination, one 57-year-old Polish man told Reuters. People are sleeping in their cars. I remember the communist times, but it didn't cross my mind that we could return to something even worse. Oh, but it's come. Something even worse has arrived. The French government has announced energy rationing this winter. Just the other day, France had so much energy that it exported it to other countries. It was a net exporter of energy. Now, there won't be enough heat in France for everyone in the country to stay warm. In the UK, 70% of restaurants are preparing to close, to go under. Why? Because when winter comes, they won't be able to afford to keep the heat and lights on, etc., etc. This is happening across Europe in every country. So the question is, why is it happening? And the answer is extremely simple. There is an energy shortage in Europe. Cheap energy is essential. It is the key to everything that a normal society strives for, prosperity, 
safety, a longer life expectancy for its citizens, everything depends on cheap energy, but Europe no longer has it. And as a result, things are falling apart very quickly. Energy costs in Europe are expected to increase by hundreds of percent in coming months. Germany's year-ahead price of electricity, that's the benchmark for all of Europe, it's measured in euros per megawatt hour, that price just exceeded 1,000 euros for the first time in history. For perspective, just a week ago, last Monday, the cost was about 700 euros per megawatt hour. And that was a record. In other words, the price rise is approaching 50% in a single week. In France, electricity went up 25% in one day. That was last Friday. Imagine that happening to you. Here's what Europe looks like tonight. In Europe, it's lights out at major monuments and tourist attractions as a long, hot summer gives way to what officials worry could be a bitterly cold winter. Skyrocketing energy prices have put Europe on a war footing with Russia as the enemy. We're in what can be described as a hybrid war, said French President Emmanuel Macron. Russia uses energy resources, like it does food, as a war weapon. To and, uh, and it's going to be real. The, the price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. Oh, so we're all going to have to buckle down for freedom. We have to shovel billions to Ukrainian oligarchs who clearly the States because it's the right thing to do. We need to hurt Russia because it's our moral duty. So did these sanctions actually hurt Russia? They caused food and energy shortages throughout the West. No, they didn't hurt Russia. Russia today has more than enough energy, more energy that it can use or sell. In fact, Russia has so much excess natural gas that it's simply setting it on fire. That's right, flaring it, as they say. A Russian plant near the border with Finland is burning $10 million worth of natural gas every day. It seems like a big story. So how's the media covering this? Well, here's the BBC. Quote, scientists are concerned about the large volumes of carbon dioxide and soot it is creating, which could exacerbate the melting of Arctic ice. Really? Now, there you, there you go. So yeah. the statement that Europeans and Biden and everybody else makes is that Russia weaponized energy. False, provenly false by their statements. Yeah. This energy crisis is because they put sanctions on Russian energy. So I would say right. that is, in fact, the U.S. and its NATO allies using energy weapon. Agreed, Jason? What? Well, yes. And not only that, it wasn't just saying, I mean, they just said, you can't spend Russian money here. So give us your oil. And Russia was like, well, screw you. Go get some rubles. Right. And they refused. And furthermore, yeah. I see some Republicans now kind of repeating it, this error and, and attributing it to Trump. And I understand why they're doing it. They're saying, well, this is what Trump predicted. They're saying, well, Trump predicted. He said, for instance, Europe is too reliant, like Germany, yeah. on Russian oil and national ga natural gas. And right. But that's acting as though Russia did something wrong. Russia supplied much of the oil and natural gas for Germany and Europe because they have a lot of it, and they were willing to sell it to Europe cheap. Now, it's not—when you say— when Trump made that warning, he didn't say they better be careful and rely on their friend Russia's good deals on oil <laughs> and natural gas. Right, Jason? Do no. you see what I'm saying? No, he, 
Absolutely. Trump, and, and they've been playing that clip a lot lately because Trump just comes out there and says, you you know, are becoming too dependent on Russian energy. And then they cut to the German delegation and they're smiling and laughing like they're not taking Trump seriously at all. And actually, at least since that Tucker Carlson report, RT.com is saying that Russia has now cut off the gas supply to uh, France, to a big energy giant in France. NG. And and I think what needs to happen is the U.S. needs to stop its war and aggressive stance towards Russia. It is not simply mm-hmm. a matter of stopping what's going on in Ukraine and yeah. having Ukraine surrender and Ukraine stop bombing the people of Donbass. But I, they need to stop. They've been at war with Russia for decades And it was a cold war for a while, and now it's gotten hot. Let me point out who the war is against. It is against the New World Order. This group of people, the Davos crowd, call them what you will, the elites who run the governments. And one thing about elites is they don't care about the people. Therefore, they don't care about democracy. And you could see, actually, the way this was going to go. Do you know what I think was a good predictor of this disaster? What? What? In 2014, the Euromedan, when the U.S., the U.K., and other New World Order countries overthrew the democratically elected government of Ukraine. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. How did that work out well for the people of Ukraine? How did it work out for the people after we overthrew the government? Uh, I mean, as far as I can tell, terribly. They're blowing up the whole place now, and there are a lot of people who have been killed. So that doesn't seem like a favorable outcome. Well, what I'm saying is forget forget now. If you go back to 2014, 2015, and you'll see that the people of Kiev were freezing to death after the U.S., like, like they're going to be doing in Europe soon. So I'm oh, going to say... When the U.S. gets involved with regime change, it turns out disastrously for the people. Yeah. Yes. And it's a clear record of that. Yeah. And not only Does that, that makes sense? you know, I've been makes a lot of sense. And I've been also reading, you know, you and I have spoken many times about the pretty unfavorable view that we share of Jared Kushner. However, Kushner has released a book that irrespective of what anyone's opinion of him is, I recommend the book because it gives a lot of insights into what was going on during the Trump presidency. And he speaks about this, how Trump went and told the Germans, you know, the book was written kind of, I guess, mostly before this uh, special military operation began. But Kushner speaks about Germany's dependence on uh, Russian oil and gas and how Trump I mean, look, say what you will about Trump. He's a businessman, and he understands what you need to do to make a business succeed and what will cause a business to fail. That's not to say that every single attempt he's ever made at business in his life didn't run into any problems, but he had a pretty clear vision uh, with regard to making the United States strong financially, militarily, and diplomatically. And Joe Biden has reversed every single one of those things, and you can draw a very clear line. From those policy changes to the disastrous outcomes that we're seeing, not just in the United States, with crime and inflation and people losing their you know, purchasing power, but around the world. 
Joe Biden is destroying the world. Because I think he's a representative of, he's a great representative of the New World Order. And yeah. the New World Order is about elites. And they literally don't care about people. And you know where else you're saying that? It, in Pakistan now, there's huge flooding. They say a third of the country is underwater. But Whoa. Pakistan's saying, well, this is a climate crisis, so we need to take climate change seriously. Hey, dummies, look, if you want, <laughs> if you want the money to get out from your disaster, don't count on the New World Order talking points. Right. And, and Apocalyptic you know, floods. There's a lot of human devastation. Do you know where else there's a lot of human devastation about flooding? It's Jackson, Mississippi. And they've had a long-term uh, flooding problem down there. And it's caused water levels. Some places in Jackson, the hydrants don't have water. Wow. Because the water's all been displaced. And apparently it's water that people in Flint, Michigan would recognize. There's all kinds of polluted water. Let me ask you a question, Lee. Let's say you had a house and you had a credit card. And you had like, what's some unbelievable, let's say you had like $500,000 in credit card debt and your, uh, the roof was caving in on your house. Would you think it's a good idea to go over to somebody's house across town and give them a bunch of money to fix their garage? Or should you just stay home and get the fire out at your house and get it fixed up before you start going around the neighborhood, giving out money to people that you don't have? Right. And I see the point you're making, but I would disagree with this premise slightly, because I think okay. your premise is we should help other ourselves before we help other people, right? And I would that say— We shouldn't be messing around you, in Ukraine when we have all these disasters here. Well, l l let me point out—here's what I'm saying. Where I disagree slightly, Jason, is—let mm. me use your analogy. Let's say your roof is, you know— in need of repair, should you go over to neighbor's house and kick him in the balls and then steal his stuff? Should you go no. over and hurt him? <laughs> no. That's. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what yeah. we do. We don't go yeah. around and help other people. We help no one. Right. We hurt other right. people. We kill other You're people right. and steal their stuff. That's what the U.S. Right. does. You're right. So, do you see my disagreement? No, you're right. You're right. That's a better analogy. And then we'll broadcast a show about how great we are. And, oh, that was nice. The guy needed to be kicked in the nuts. Actually, somebody else kicked him in the nuts. We just gave him a jock strap or something. And by the way, Jason, as co-host, you should officially give me a language warning now. Oh. You should say, Lee, you can't talk like that, FCC. But what did you say? I, I won't repeat I it. I, yeah, sorry. How dumb would that be? <laughs> what did <Yeah>. you say? <laughs> I missed it. <laughs> But uh, thanks to Grand Central, I'm sure they caught that. But let's go to calls. And the perfect caller now is on the line, the killer of owls. And the owls are not what they seem. 202-521-1320. Owl killer, you're on with Jason and Lee. No, they're, they're more like uh, the black hand in uh, Godfather 2, let me wet my beak. We don't know what they're wetting their yeah. beak in, though. Um, I want to touch on two points. Um, but be before I get into the uh, Trump and the whole energy thing that they're promoting now, I, I caught on to that. So you guys are talking about how they weaponize words, how like anti-fascist Antifa is really, they behave as fascists. 
I think one of the best things Alex Jones does is the way that he he's been calling this out for for the longest time. But I think his best uh, work on this, if you ever, if it's still on YouTube, it's the I'm so trendy rant where he's talking about how um, it was the Coney 2012 thing, and he's like they're deploying people in pink and uh, green uh, neon colors with uh, bandanas and bent wrists to sell a war over in uh, to sell a war in Africa. And he's like, yeah, it's perfect. It's the it's the perfect camouflage. They don't come out like Darth Vader anymore. But I, I think that's one of his best. The way he's able to uh, poke fun at, and that, unfortunately, he's straight away from that because they'll say, oh, see, this guy's nuts when he's clearly doing satire. But yeah, that they definitely weaponize language, and that's that goes back to Herbert Mancusa, where he's like, um, we have to, we're only allowed to sell tolerance on our side, and yeah, they use words as a weapon. Um, Touching on what you, the Tucker Carlson clips you just played, uh, Jason, you read my mind because I did. Re- I do have the uh, the memoir from Jared Kushner, and did you notice yeah. there where he also talked about how he got Russia and OPEC to sit down and fix oil prices because the prices were dropping so low, and it was putting companies out of business. Everything we have in this country is a new world order self inflicted wound. And and it's almost, you know, if I was cynical and I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know about um, Senate Resolution 322, I would think that Russia's in bed with this because this is perfect. You know, start start a fake war that, you know, that it's not, you know, nobody, the only people that are really getting hurt are Ukrainians, you know, for the most, for the most part. And, you know, you jack energy prices up and, you know, let's say uh, cooler heads do prevail. The price when if Russia does start selling energy back to Europe, hey, it just doubles and it's better than nothing. Oh yeah, yeah. You no, know, that that it'll seem low. Re- reality of the situation, you know, and that that is what Europe will deal with. You know, yeah, we, we, um, we're all good for business, but your prices are double. It's better than not having any, any energy, isn't it? Um, yeah. You no, know, I did know. And let me let me say something. One sec, Al Keller. I'll go, come back to you. But about Saudi Arabia. What imagine a world, imagine a U.S. that said, you know what, we trade oil with Saudi Arabia and we don't agree with everything they do politically, but also they don't agree with everything we do politically. For instance, Saudi Arabia probably doesn't like our stance on gay marriage, but we are trading partners and we're going to be trading partners with them. and. And, you know, we'll try to lead by example, and ha- hopefully they'll they'll see where they've made mistakes, and hopefully we, we will too. Now, if we had that attitude with Russia, because you notice we never stopped or threatened to stop dealing with, with Saudi. Saudi Arabia. Right. Right. Never. But the idea is that we shouldn't deal with Russia because we're good and they're bad, and we're going to lecture them. Does that make sense? I, all yeah. I want is the same policy we have towards the Soviet, Soviet Union, that, sorry, sorry, towards yeah. Russia, that we have with, with Saudi Arabia. Forgive me. Consistency. And Consistency is something that anybody wants in any situation, because without it, anything could happen, and it's, you're not very comfortable. No. And I'd also like it if we did not say about Saudi Arabia how awesome they are, and or— what Trump did was he didn't say factually 
We have some disagreements with them, but they're a trading partner. He went over and touched the orb. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully just <laughs> what is hopefully just literally and not metaphorically. But uh we we have to pretend the people we trade with are great guys, and they're not. So not only do we demonize Putin, but we pretend Saudi Arabia is awesome. And that's how crazy our policy is. Back to you, Al Keller. No, no I, absolutely. I still want to know what what is up with that orb because it, 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 he wasn't the only one that touched that thing. It was. Uh, it's the Palantir control that that somehow controls the U, UI, the user interface control for Palantir, and that was the extremist center that they had opened, which. I mean, you know, I still don't trust Jared Kushner, and I recognize that 90 to 100 percent of this book could be pure lies. But there are things in it that ring true because stuff happened that we saw that he's talking about. And from that standpoint, I have to say I've been quite surprised how much he was able to get done. And whether I like him or not, he is an extremely effective person. Well, P- Peter Navarro says uh, that that the book is like eighty percent fiction, but yeah, you know the best type of fiction ah. is when you sprinkle some truth in there. Um, but I, I do want to get back you, how they're trying, how they're like, oh Trump, look, look how right you were, look how right you were at the UN saying, oh that uh, Germany's dependent on Russia. They, they, it's a tactic that they use with him. They blow his head up. To think that he's like, oh, look, I am really that smart. I am so smart. And they, <laughs> I am, no, that's what it is. I am going to stick with that. I, I, yeah, I am smart. I am going to stick with that. That's how they prevent him from saying he, because if he looks at it from objectively, he's like, okay, this is a bad idea. Um, and I really don't think we, there, the war would be going on if uh, he was still president. I, I, I don't at all. No. But I, I, yeah. I, I don't either. Yeah. I agree. And I, so this just stop there for a second. Think of how many people have been killed by the horrible policies of Joe Biden. And, and we haven't even spoken about Afghanistan. That wouldn't have happened either. The Jared Kushner book talks about how Trump was trying to formulate a plan to pull out of Afghanistan. But Mattis and all of but, his other but, uh, generals were thwarting. And we, we got, got to go to commercial because Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies coming on. But Al Keller, I agree, but nothing good would have happened. He should have pulled out of Afghanistan. Trump would, wouldn't have done the disaster that Biden did, but right. he wouldn't have pulled right. out. He would have been intimidated, and partially by Jared Kushner. So, Jason, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Andrew Arthur for the Center for Immigration Studies here on The Backstory. FM and AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now is the great Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing finely, and thank you so much for having me today. Well, thanks for joining us again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. 
So I've been dealing with your, is it fair to call Mark Krikorian your leader? Mark Krikorian, as I told uh, Representative Hank Johnson of Georgia before he started asking me what books I read, uh, is the man who uh, uh, signs my paychecks. He is my boss. He is the executive director of the uh, Center for Immigration Studies. And I've been honored and privileged to be able to talk to Mark Krikorian for about a decade now. I've known him for about a decade when I was covering his stuff immigration stuff over at Breitbart. And I've seen, at the time, some of the problems we were having with immigration were strictly U.S. problems. But I've seen immigration pick up as an issue around the world. Have you seen the the world seems to have adopted some of our bad habits about immigration policy in the past decade? Yeah, it's actually interesting because um, the United States has a—what I'm going to say is trite, but necessary. The United States has a history as a immigrant-receiving uh, country, um, along with uh, the United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia. Uh, but uh, many countries around the world haven't really learned the lessons uh, that the United States had learned up to the most recent— uh, election about immigration, about uh, the various policies that encourage people to enter the United States uh, illegally, that encourage them to remain here, that encourage them to work here. Uh, and so consequently, immigration has become a much bigger issue uh, in France, uh, in Sweden, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, in a whole lot of areas. In fact, I'll note that uh, Israel has recently erected a border fence along its border with Sinai in order to keep uh, illegal migrants out of Israel. So, yeah, it is a, uh, it's becoming a bigger issue around the world. Of course, it's much easier for people to travel not only from one country, but from one continent to another. Uh, and a lot of the lessons uh, that we've learned here, one, have been forgotten here, but two, uh, have never been learned in those other countries around the world. Now, it, it seems to me like if, if, you, if I had to sum up what I believe in for immigration policy, it's controlled immigration policy as opposed to an out-of-control immigration policy. Do you think that's broadly fair, a characterization of what's good immigration policy versus disastrous immigration policy? Yeah, it, absolutely. In fact, you don't have to rely upon, you know, Art Arthur's assessment of it. You can look to President Barack Obama, I think it was last September, that he stated that, you know, we're a nation state and we have borders. Uh, we are a compassionate country. Uh, we accept uh, more asylees and refugees than every other country on the face of the earth combined. In fact, right now we have more than a million pending asylum applications for aliens who are in the United States. It's a number that's probably gotten a lot higher since Biden took office. But um, we're a compassionate country, but we need to we need to control that immigration for a couple of different reasons. One of them is practical. Um, Section 212A7 of the Immigration and Nationality Act states that the Secretary of Labor uh, can't grant uh, a visa for anybody coming to the United States to perform labor unless the Secretary certifies that the arrival of that alien is not going to adversely affect the wages and working conditions of 
uh, Americans, and by that uh, they mean citizens and lawful residents uh, who are already here. So, yeah, a big part of it is that we don't want to make it harder for people in the United States, especially at the margins, to climb the economic ladder by swapping the country with cheap immigration. Uh, two is uh, we need to keep out terrorists. We need to keep out criminals. We need to keep out those who are with communicable diseases of significant public health uh, importance. And so that's another reason why we have the law. Again, those are the practical reasons that we have it. The more emotional reason uh, I think you and I have discussed goes back to something that uh, Barbara Jordan said over a quarter century ago, for your listeners who aren't familiar with her, Ms. Jordan was a Democrat. She was uh, the first African-American woman who was elected to Congress from the South. Uh, and in the mid-90s, she was the chairman of uh, President Clinton's Commission on Immigration Reform. And she said something that's really stuck with me, and that is that if we can't control illegal immigration, uh, the American people are going to lose faith in immigration writ large. We're we're a country of immigrants. We need to continue to have fresh blood, new ideas come in. Uh, we're a diverse nation, uh, and you know that is whatever other people might think. In my mind, it's one of our strengths. But if you you know don't control immigration. The American people are going to lose faith in it. They're going to turn against immigration. We're going to become a very insular country, uh, and we won't uh, continue to allow foreign nationals to come here and share the blessings of our liberty. Well, it's been a little over 10 years since my friend Andrew Breitbart died. And Andrew used to say to me, and he used to say publicly, that he believes in a policy uh, uh, the principle, I, I should say, it's not really a policy, of e pluribus unum, from many one. And he was noticing that immigrants were becoming aggressively not wanting to be part of a melting pot, not wanting to become Americans. So have you seen that change? I, I, I would say it's gotten much worse since Andrew left. Uh, yeah. And again, you know, yeah, Ms. Jordan talked about that on September 11th, 1995, she actually wrote an editorial for the New York Times that was called The Americanization Ideal. And she said the United States isn't really so much a melting pot as it's a kaleidoscope. Uh, you know, uh, and it always looks different with each turn of the kaleidoscope. But at the same time, we needed to return to what she called Americanization. And that was, um, you know, bringing uh, the newcomer into our body politic, ensuring that they believe in the principles that have built this country, pluralism, respect for the law, uh, self-reliance, hard work, uh, and that if we didn't do those things, that we were going to fail as a nation. She actually put the burden on both the alien and the citizen. She said that for the citizen, it was absolutely crucial that we learn our own history so that we understood what made us great as a nation. She also said that we had an obligation to, you know, help raise up uh, those newcomers, those aliens who have come to our country and teach them our common language, uh, English, uh, because that's the only way that they're going to get by in our country. Now, part of the problem we, that we have with massive waves of immigration is that that assimilation can't occur. In fact, the Biden administration doesn't even like the term uh, assimilation, respectfully. 
you know, I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud of our institutions. Uh, none of my ancestors uh, were originally from here, but we adopted those principles and we've embraced uh, those ideals that have made our country great. And it's only fair, not only is it only fair, but it's only sensible that everybody who comes here adopt those principles as well. We don't want to have tension between, uh, you know, aliens and citizens, but we don't want to have, uh, you know, our citizenry turn against the aliens. We want them to come here so that they can enjoy our country, so that they can adopt our principles, and so that they can, you know, to have the same benefits, opportunities, and responsibilities that the citizens have. Jason Goodman, do you have any questions or comments for Andrew Arthur? I do, Andrew. As you're speaking, I, you know, it really bothered me a lot when Ilhan Omar got elected to Congress that she insisted because her culture demanded that she wear a, a headdress that Congress change a hundred, hundred and something year old standing rule that no headdress is to be worn in Congress. And this was presented to us as, oh, you know, Trump doesn't like Muslims. She's Muslim. You got to let her wear a headdress. I say no, not because of anything to do with Muslim people, the religion of Islam or, or whatever. But what you're saying, it's not about coming here and forcing people in America to accept her culture. It's about her coming here and saying America is great, so I'm going to integrate into this culture and perhaps in her family life or whatever, go practice whatever religious traditions you want to practice. But I was very upset by that. I felt like that was kowtowing. And we see what it preceded and what it has led to. These are the same people who think we shouldn't have police and we should give out money to everybody. And you should be able to take out loans and not pay them. This is not the American way. And I think that that was a symbolic gesture of the collapse of what you're talking about. Well, you know, it, it is interesting because, uh, you know, the issue with respect to hijabs, uh, headscarves, et cetera, is uh, a salient issue uh, in France. Uh, it has been for a number of years, you know, whether it is appropriate, uh, you know, to uh, allow that. Respectfully, I do have to uh, disagree with you to some degree. Um, you know, one of, you know, the great Americans that I venerate, man who did plenty of things wrong, but did a lot of things right, is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is the father of religious freedom in this country. Uh, the Virginia Statutes of Religious Freedom, of course, became the basis for our First Amendment. Um, and with respect to religious devotion, be it, you know, the wearing of uh, clerical garb uh, by priests, be it the uh, wearing of payas uh, and, uh, you know, other religious items by the Hasidic Jews in my hometown of Baltimore, uh, or, you know, be it, uh, you know, complete rejection of those things, you know, in a school situation, uh, there may be room for difference, but, you know, generally it's one of those things that, you know, we want to accommodate. But when you're talking about somebody being seated in the House of Representatives who has been elected, um, we should not infringe on their religious liberty or their religious devotion, uh, you know, uh, in what they feel they should wear. In fact, I believe I may be wrong about this, 
But I believe that even the United States military has exceptions for uh, members of the Sikh religion, uh, you know, very devout people who are excellent fighters. Believe me, you want to have them on your side in a fight. Um, who, you know, uh, follow what are called the five Ks. One of those five Ks is the wearing of the turban. Um, again, you know, if you go up to Canada and you see the Mounties, you'll see Mounties who are wearing turbans. They are uh, what are called Amradari Sikhs. Um, and I believe, I, I think this is correct, that the United States military has also uh, adopted a form of turban for those people who want to express their religion to the degree that their religion, uh, their religious practice doesn't, uh, you know, conflict uh, with, uh, you know, any of the other liberties that we enjoy and, and respectfully, even but to a degree you, that it does, uh, it should be allowed. Right. So, but well, I yeah, mean, again, you know, that's, that, but it does go to a point that Ms. Jordan was making and that, you know, I also want to make, and that is, you know, allowing the expression of uh, religion in such a manner is wholly consistent with the pluralism, pluralism on which this country was built. My ancestors, my Catholic ancestors who came here really didn't face much discrimination, but curiously enough, in the 1950s, 1940s, my mother had to leave her hometown in Pennsylvania because she was a Catholic, she was a school teacher, and she wanted to teach in high school. The high school, from what she's told me, already had one Catholic, and that was as many as they would allow, and so she moved to Baltimore. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is a, a real salient issue for me. But again, you know, religious pluralism, uh, you know, be it a mainline congregationalist or be it, you know, Wiccan, uh, is one of those things that, you know, makes us great. We accept our differences. Uh, and again, but it does go to the point that you're making, e pluribus unum. We have to be one. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the ways that we are one, notwithstanding our differences. Well, just one more point on that, because I, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg with Ilhan Omar. And I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't be able to celebrate religion and demonstrate their devotion to it in ways that they find important. But in Congress, you know, I, I am very much interested in the separation of church and state. And I mean, you know, if some Rastafarian was elected to Congress, I don't think they would allow them to conduct religious rituals that involve marijuana while in Congress. So there's always lines that are drawn. And again, I just don't like the idea that, you know, here we have someone who's saying, hey, you know, this is more important to me than your rules of Congress. Well, that's fine. Then you can go hang out in Minneapolis and and uh, practice religion and do whatever you want. But if you want to participate in this, there's an accommodation that has to happen, and it's not for us to accommodate you. You came here because you want to be part of America. What I'm saying is Ilhan Omar, the individual, and that act of rescinding the rule is a power play by Ilhan Omar Omar to demonstrate that she intends to make the United States bend to her will, not that she wants to participate here because she thinks this is great. That's my opinion. Yeah, no, and I mean, it's it's perfectly, you know, it's reasonable. And, you know, it, this actually goes to another one of those strongly held principles that we need to ensure, um, you know, foreign nationals who come to this country are inculcated with, and that is the ability to have uh, reasoned disagreements about, uh, you know, issues, even hot button issues. You know, the freedom of speech 
um, is something that I rely upon in my work. It's something that you both rely upon in your work. Uh, and our ability to discuss issues uh, with respect uh, is absolutely, uh, you know, crucial. And that's one of those things that we need to ensure we don't lose as a nation. And that's one of those things that we need to ensure that everybody who comes to this country who wants to become part of, you know, our body politic adopts. You know, people may say things they don't like. People may say, you know, scurrilous, scandalous things. Um, but, uh, you know, we have to respect their right to say them. goes all the way back to Voltaire. I disagree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Yeah, and that's the that, principle that is, we, we absolutely lost that. That principle has been killed and buried in the ground in this age. Now, Andrew, uh, as we approach, I, I would say, and they're all important. And every election, they say, this is the most important election of our lifetime. I know I've had about four or five most important elections of my lifetime. <laughs> but this midterm election <laughs> is an important one because the Democrats control the Senate and the House by razor thin margins. And getting control of the Houses of Congress will effectively end the Biden administration. He will make Joe Biden, if the Republicans, if the Republicans can take back the House and Senate, it effectively makes Joe Biden a lame duck. Now, so the media is not talking about it, but are you seeing that immigration is an important issue to people across the country as we approach midterms? Andrew? Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, Lee, we've seen it already play a role uh, down in the Texas 34th Congressional District. There was a special election held uh, early in the summer. Actually, I think it was late spring for a seat that had been vacated by Philemon Vale, a Democrat. Good man. Um, that had been held by Democrats for over a century. That seat was won by Myra Flores, uh, a uh, Mexican immigrant, uh, now a citizen, who was married to a Border Patrol agent, and part of her platform was border security. This is McAllen. This is the heart of the Rio Grande Valley, which is the tip of the spear of the migrant crisis that we're seeing today. That district is, uh, I think, 90 percent plus Hispanic, and yet uh, you know, uh, Democrats have run on amnesty and open borders for years, assuming that they're going to win the votes of Hispanics. That was a situation where it didn't work. In fact, we're seeing a similar fight take place in uh, the general election come November for Texas 15th, where uh, uh, the Republican candidate uh, is uh, running for office and uh, Monica de la Cruz against Michelle Vallejo. Monica de la Cruz is running on a border security platform, again, in a largely Hispanic district. Ms. Vallejo, on the other hand, contends that there is no chaos at the Rio Grande and that the Republican Party is simply scapegoating immigrants. So we've seen it play out. But, you know, those are, you know, unique situations. Lee, if we take a look at the country as a whole, we actually, you know, have a better idea. CBS News conducted a poll with YouGov uh, just a few days ago. It was a massive poll. It was more than 2,000 uh, 
uh, respondents to this poll. And they were asked uh, whether various topics would be very important or important or not important when they cast their vote in November. 58% of respondents stated that immigration would be very important when it came time for them to vote. And an additional 29% deemed it somewhat important. That's a total importance of 87%. Just 13% said that it wouldn't be important. So, you know, again, immigration is a sleeper issue in this election. It definitely wasn't the last one. In fact, it was malpractice on the behalf of on behalf of Trump and his handlers not to, you know, make immigration a bigger issue, to, you know, uh, have a bigger divide between himself and Joe Biden in the 2020 uh, general election for president. But, you know, let's take a look at some of the other issues that are, you know, hot button issues as we consider them today. Abortion in the wake of the Dobbs decision, which struck down Roe versus Wade, which had somehow identified in the penumbras and uh, permutations of the Constitution a right to abortion. Uh, Democrats are, you know, hoping that Dobbs is really going to drive out uh, turnout and help them maintain control of Congress. Um, and but if you look at, you know, the number of people who said that they were going to vote based on abortion, it was 59 percent who said it would be very important, 24 percent who said that it would be somewhat important. That's 83 percent, 4 percent less than immigration got. Um, you know, you look at guns, uh, a majority of respondents to that poll were unhappy with Joe Biden's gun policy by a 60 to 40 percent margin. Um, now, again, 66 percent of respondents stated the gun policy would be very important. Twenty four percent asserted it would be somewhat important. So that's 90 percent or three points higher than immigration got. But still, you know, immigration is one of those issues that the Republican Party is really failing to tap into uh, with respect to the midterm elections. And as much as with Trump, I think it's going to be malpractice if they don't bring up the disaster at the border, what Bloomberg opinion of all people called Biden's, uh, Biden's border fiasco uh, as an issue, uh, because it's a problem. It's a problem for our nation for all the reasons that we've been discussing today. Jason Goodman, do you have another question or comment for Andrew Arthur? Andrew, I mean, obviously, this is something you've been researching for a while. We've been hearing these numbers of, you know, X number of million, two million that have come over the border. I mean, obviously, resources are not infinite. What at what point when does this break? It, in my mind, it's already broken. And let me just quantify some of the things yeah. that we're talking about. So 3.19 million uh, migrants have been apprehended at the southwest border since Biden took office. That's on top of about 750,000 who snuck past Border Patrol and made it in. So many unaccompanied alien children have been uh, allowed into the United States under a poorly thought out Democrat-sponsored bill back in 2008 that if they were all in the same uh, school district, it would be the 10th largest school district in America. And that's at like 13,800 wow. school districts. Holy cow. So, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, huge numbers. So many people, 1.129 million people have been released that we know about. And again, that's not even counting the getaway or the gotaways uh, who evaded Border Patrol and the kids who were released. Um they would be, I think, the sixth or seventh largest city in America if they all lived in one place. 
So, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the numbers that we're talking about are significant. And that's why states like Texas, Arizona, Missouri, Montana, Ohio are suing in federal court in an attempt to block uh, Biden's policies or alternatively force Biden to go back to Trump's policies because of the effect that it's having in their states, in their small towns. We're going to see this in the schools, which are just opening up, where we have a whole bunch of kids uh, who don't speak English, who are going to require additional resources. Remember, uh, the uh, property taxes that we all pay go to fund public schools. That's the primary place that uh, you know those taxes go. And so we're going to see our property tax rates go up. We're going to see emergency rooms swamped. Most migrants don't have uh, uh, health insurance, and for that reason, for primary care, they go to emergency rooms where they cannot be turned away. The late Robert Byrd, Democratic senator from West Virginia, was an immigration hawk because he used to have to take his beloved wife, Irma, uh, who had a number of health problems, to the emergency room, and she constantly had to wait in West Virginia uh, to be treated because so many people were abusing the emergency rooms where people cannot be turned away even if they cannot pay. So, yeah, I mean, these are you know practical issues. We're also going to see a dampening of wages at the lower level. Now, it's going to make it cheaper and easier for, you know, the wealthy amongst us to get things, uh, but it's going to make it a whole lot worse for uh, people at the bottom end of the ladder, again, uh, who Ms. Jordan talked about, you know, members of minority groups, inner city youth and immigrants who hadn't adjusted to life in the United States at this point, uh, it's going to make it harder for them to succeed. It's going to condemn generations of people in our inner cities and even in our rural areas to poverty for generations if we don't get a handle on it now. Now, finally, Andrew, let me ask you, when this argument came out a decade ago, what I noticed is people like you bring up facts and math, and the argument response is you're racist. Now, <laughs> on have the Democrats gotten any better at arguing their point, or is their argument essentially still to accuse Republicans of being racist for wanting some control on immigration? Yes, you know, one, it's a great question. Two, it's not necessarily Democrat or Republican divide. We see plenty of big business Democrats who suddenly find their humanity when it comes time to, you know, import all of that cheap labor into the United States. We see a lot of, uh, you know, Democrats, not necessarily elected Democrats, but, you know, I live in North Carolina and I got Democrats around me. They don't understand what's going on. Uh, that, you know, we're not taking care of our own. We're not taking care of our veterans. We're not taking care of, you know, those who are in the throes of drug addiction. But instead, we're kowtowing uh, and giving benefits and, you know, flying people around the country. And, Andrew, we're out of time. But uh, as usual, a fantastic conversation. Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies, which is cis.org. When we come back, we're talking to Jason Goodman. Today's co-host on Truth Tuesday on The Backstory. And we are live from the Empire of Lies. 
It's time for the second hour of the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines on a Truth Tuesday with guest co-host Jason Goodman on The Backstory. So it's great talking to Andrew Arthur. He's a very reasonable person. Would you say so, Jason? Yeah, a ton of information. And he has a, a, a you know, he was a former immigration judge. That's what he oh. did. Wow. Right. And it's got the kind of temperament you'd want from a judge. Yeah. You know, fair and balanced. Yes. So coming up past hour. Yes. Coming up this hour, the great Tyler Nixon is our guest. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. And Jason, what is the name of the show? This is The Backstory. Now, uh, here's a programming note. I'm planning a series of things. I was thinking about this last night, Jason. I'm planning on doing a series. And what do you think about this idea? It's the first time Rod's hearing it. I'm planning on doing a series on the show of interviews and segments about Vladimir Putin. And I'm gonna. what I'm going to do is I'm going to explicitly tell Vladimir Putin's story. Because, let me ask you, you know, I think a lot of, you know, obviously our audience is American by and large. Yep. Yeah. So let me ask you, is why do you think patriotic Americans should care about the way Vladimir Putin is represented in the media? Or do you well, think they should? Most, I absolutely think they should. He's the president of one of the most important countries in the world, economically, militarily, and otherwise. He's one of the most consequential politicians in certainly, I don't know, the last 50 or 100 years. And we don't really know that much about him. I would like to know more. I would like to interview Putin at some time in my life. He is a very interesting guy, whether you like him or dislike him. He's had an amazingly interesting life. And you should like him. And this series is going to be factually speaking. And let me give a parallel. I think Democrats, even people who are lifelong Democrats, should care about the way Trump was misrepresented by the media. Yeah. Do you agree? Lee, I think the most important thing we have in determining decisions for ourselves and our families is the truth. And when we lose the ability to get to the truth, we're just completely off the rails. And I'll say, in, in terms of Putin, people have a vague, vaguely uncomfortable sense or kind of don't like him and they don't even know why. Yeah. Like Probably. if you ask them, what don't you like about Putin? They'll either repeat a lie. Yes. And they don't even know where the lie came from. They'll say like, well, he ki kills his opponents. That's lie. the first thing that came to my mind. Cause they say that all the time. But when I mean, well, name there me was that British. Name me so I'm right. not, but since you, since you said that's the first thing that occurred to you, then if I were to say, name the opponent he killed, name the political opponent Vladimir Putin killed, who is it? Yeah, well, the I mean, everyone knows who they say it is. But what I think of when this comes up is that interview on NBC between a British journalist who I don't know and Putin, where he said exactly that. And Putin said, OK, 
you've just made a series of, you've just listed a series of accusations. You've told me who has made the accusations, but you haven't presented any evidence to support those accusations. Give us the evidence and we'll address it. And Putin contends that he hasn't done those things. And the United States, as usual, has failed to provide this evidence and have an even-handed debate about did this happen or did it not. They just rely on lies and propaganda. Well, and if you if you ask somebody, Joe Biden said Putin's a killer. Right. Name the person. Who Who is this person who Vladimir Putin had killed? And they'll say sometimes, well, he tried to kill Navalny. And yeah, then I'll Zanko. say, what do you know? Who? Well, they, they list those. Who's the guy that got poisoned with the polonium? Wasn't it Litvenko or something? No, it was uh, the, the polonium. When that first came up, it was about Sergei Skripal, a double agent. It was not someone running against Putin. No, no, the guy okay. in the sushi place, the guy in the sushi place who Litvinenko. was in the hospital. What, what Litvinenko. Litvinenko. What office was you running for? Answer, no. I agree with he you. He was not a political the British, opponent. The British poisoned these guys, in my opinion. Right. But I, I'm going to go back a, a step. When Putin is accused of killing his political opponents, Litvinenko yeah. was not a political opponent. He was a double agent, a former Russian spy who yeah. went, went to England, not a political opponent. Does that make sense? Yeah. I got his book. Whose book? Litvinenko wrote a book called Blowing Up Russia that I got because I'm sure it's British propaganda. Right. And, and you say Litvinenko wrote it. I wonder who really well, wrote it. Exactly. It's got another guy's name on it, too, because I wonder if he's able to. I mean, writing in a foreign language, a whole book would be super difficult, I think. But I ask people a basic factual question. What who's the political opponent who Putin supposedly killed? They can't. You you and no one can name who that person was. Right. I, I'm saying, none. right, there is none. But yet people repeat that. So I'm going to deal with it in this series of reports on Putin of asking basic questions. And I want to ask, I think you have to ask the basic question. Are they factually honest about Putin? And it's obvious no. that, that they are not. Now let's and, go to calls. Just real quick to answer one. your question. Yuri yeah, Felshinsky is the co-author of this Litvinenko book. Never heard of him. Me neither. It's not, it's not a name I'm familiar with. And it could have been. It could have been written by Christopher Steele. Who knows? Right. Because Christopher Steele worked on the Litvinenko case. And Steele's one who accused Putin. I think American patriots need to care about this. Because demonizing Putin, making Putin the personal boogeyman, keeps Americans following bad policy on Russia. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. And I'm sure this book is propaganda. I haven't read it yet. Yes, I'm sure, too. And I'd be interested. And we, we may pursue that a little. But let's go to yeah. calls. 202-521-1320. Ingrid in D.C. What is on your mind? Welcome to the backstory. Thanks, Lee. Uh, something from the last hour, but, you know, I can't remember the names, but they accuse Putin for having ordered the killing of a couple of journalists. But that's one thing if you look up. But 
going back in the last hour. You mean like Julian Assange? Oh, right. Ooh, can't bring that up. <laughs> but go ahead, Ingrid. <laughs> Something um, Owl Killer said that maybe went beneath your radar. Uh, I do not think this is a fake war in Ukraine, and the Ukrainians are not the only ones being hurt. There are substantial numbers of Russian soldiers and even civilians yeah. being killed and wounded, not anywhere near as many as the Ukrainians are claiming. But it, this is, they are not, the Ukrainians are not the only victims in this. And uh, going back to something Jason said, uh, he seemed to be praising Trump for uh, trying to discourage Germany from buying Russian oil or Russian gas or energy or, or whatever, as though Russia was somehow a worse uh, business partner than anybody else. And uh, that, you know, I don't know. I, well, that, no, 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 that, that wasn't my, that's not what I was saying. It was saying that uh, Trump rightly identified a strategic pinch point. And I think if Trump were president, it would be, hey, the United States will continue producing energy and start selling it to you so that our economy will improve. I think that's what Trump would have wanted to do. And just from the standpoint no, of people in America I having more actually, money and actually speaking, Trump did want that. But that is a dopey idea on Trump's part. If he's a businessman. The U.S. was not the right energy partner. What he should have encouraged is don't screw up your relationship with a good right. business partner, Russia. Yeah. But yeah. Trump's idea that you shouldn't deal with Russia on energy, you should deal with the U.S., is dopey. And anyone who thinks it's a good idea, just look at a freaking map or globe and look at Germany's proximity to Russia and the U.S.'s. I'm not right. saying it would be a good idea. I'm just saying I think it would be uh, – first of all, I don't think Trump would have started this war and put everybody in Europe in the position that they're in. But I think that the notion of competing with Russia to send some amount of gas there would be sensible business because it could help control the price of energy in Europe. Competition. Sure, but let me point out something. If th This is why it's a dopey idea. Europe's about to freeze. Yeah. Europe's about to freeze. They have a, a massive energy problem. Why isn't yeah. the U.S. solving it now? See, see, the reason it's dopey, and what Trump said it was dopey, is Trump was giving the impression that the U.S. could fulfill the energy needs that Russia did not. Obviously, that's a lie. Obviously, why isn't the U.S. doing it now? Why is energy— We turned off all the energy production? Because domestic energy production is so much lower than it was under Trump. I mean, again, I'm not saying that we should have replaced Russia, but if you're the only guy selling iced tea out of your Snapple factory and I open an iced tea restaurant on the corner, you might not care. But as I start to grow, it's competition. It helps control well, the price. Russia's never argued against competition, but Trump right. making his dopey point for his cult-like followers, the people who follow Trump just go, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Realistically— Russia is right next to Germany. And realistically, there's an ocean between the U.S. and Germany. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which Trump was trying to shut down, and I don't think that's a competitive business practice. I think that's 
a, a cutthroat business practice. And that is, why did Trump spend any time trying to shut down Nord Stream 2? I'm not it's saying you're arguing point. for this, Jason, but I'm saying— No, no, no. It's a, fair, it's a fair point, but I just don't think we would be in remotely this position. Look, I don't think Trump was perfect, and I think he did a lot of things you know. He did a lot of things that I think were not good. But from the standpoint of keeping the United States economy strong, recognizing that every industry requires energy, and that shutting off energy production crippled the United States, sending tons of weapons over there. I mean, Trump wanted to be in business with Russia. And being a friendly competitor with somebody that you're in business with is better than sending so many how, weapons how over there. How friendly is Russia trying saying, to shut down Nord Stream 2? Trump never tried to be friendly with Russia. Trump put more restrictions on Russia through sanctions than the Obama administration. That's reality. Now, again, I'm, not, I'm realistic about Trump. This is not a matter of attacking him. It's saying it's not friendly to try to shut down Nord Stream 2 right up. In, and, and you've seen Trump complain about Nord Stream 2 since, he, since Biden's been in office. So hmm. that's my argument there, Jason. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, but great calling, great. Thanks so much for the call. 202 521 1320. Joshua, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, how's it going? I just want to thank uh, thank you and, and Mr. Goodman. You were the last show that I listened to on um, on Sputnik now after going through all of them. Um, also, to you, you get a small, I, I swear to God, even even when it comes to the, um, uh, the critical hour, I, I just can't watch it anymore. I listen to it anymore. Um, but anyway, um, thank you guys for being so informative. I have let all my family know that I'm currently holiday in Europe. Like they're coming home. Um, yeah. To to Jason's point, I would say that even though we would have a not just a friendly competition with Russia, it would probably be better spent now just focusing on ourselves since we have very little relationship with Russia. Um, I'm more uh, I'm more anxious to see what we can do in this country, and I'm saying all this as I'm currently working at Tesla. <laughs> But, um, no, I don't keep, I don't keep you guys uh, tied up. Thank you. Well, Thanks Joshua, for the call. We, have a, we have a slightly bad connection, but I heard what you yeah. said. And thank you very much for the nice sauce. Jason? Yeah. Yeah, no, great call. Thank you. But, yes, a little bit of background noise there. Yeah. So, again, do you see what I'm saying about I, – I think it's time for even Trump supporters to say, you know what? Trump was, and he was intimidated into it. Trump, if he'd said, you know what? I say we should let the Nord Stream 2 pipeline go forward because Germany makes sense as a trading partner with Russia. If he had said that, he would have been attacked as a Putin puppet. Right. You see what I'm saying? Right. These decisions are often complicated by things that we might not be tutoring. And I think the basis of a lot of it is the lies about Putin. I think, Yeah. and so that's why I want to do a series of stuff. And you say we don't know much about Putin. I think that's false, actually. I think we're- Well, I'm saying the general public. Much. Yes, the general public in right. America. Saying. Because we're lied to constantly right. from politicians of both parties. You've heard as much anti-Putin rhetoric from Republicans as Democrats. 
and it's lies. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, I thought about it because here's the other thing. There, in terms of uh, their manner, Trump and Trump and Putin, I would say, are two of the most attacked politicians worldwide. Would you agree? Trump and Putin are well, attacked. Yeah, I mean, certainly in the U.S. But think I, about I the differences. Think about the differences between Trump and Putin in terms of their manner, Jason. How would you define uh, Trump's manner versus Putin's manner, the way he behaves? Trump is loud, bombastic, braggadocious, uh, perhaps to a fault. I think most people would agree to a fault, whereas Putin is very reserved, calculating. He speaks uh, cautiously, is I he, think. Does he just, is, is he a braggart? Not at all. Right. But let me say that being a braggart like Trump has some advantages in terms of right. public perception, because yes. Trump is a big defender of Trump, whereas Putin has said he doesn't care about the way he's perceived. He, he cares more about what's benefiting the people. And right. while I think that's a virtue, personally, I think it's hurt Putin's PR worldwide, because you don't have examples of Putin going after his critics in a braggadocious way. Putin doesn't make the case strongly for Putin. Does that make sense? No. Well, he's not, like, tweeting from the toilet at 2 a.m. Right. Or, or he's not saying how great he is. Right. He, he, he just does his work. And Yeah, the size of aspect, the crowd at the military parade. <laughs> he's not talking about that. No, right. And I, I think Trump is too braggadocious, but I think there's some advantages to being braggadocious because or it, it makes Trump's audience, the Trump supporters, echo his talking points. And Putin over here, when he's attacked and when Biden comes out and calls him a killer or something like that, very few people go up and defend Putin. Does that make sense? And I don't mean yeah. defend like they're defensive. I mean, just set the record straight. It's not happening here, for sure. Well, I would argue— Maybe, maybe in Russia? I don't know. I'm not watching TV there. No. And you, you've never heard it happening in Russia. But I'm saying you, you don't know everything, obviously. But yeah. you, I think you would have heard about it. Maybe. Because the media mischaracterizes everything. And how they deal with Trump, all you hear about is vague stuff about— Russian disinformation. So, you know, I decided last night, I was thinking about this. The attacks on Putin allow, have created a boogeyman that few people in America ever push back on. Few people anywhere, few Republicans, few Democrats, and they don't even push back on it about reflexively. I'm not talking about being reflexively defensive. I'm talking about answering with facts. Do you see what I'm saying? I think even, you know, I mean, you and I have discussed the reasons for this, but of course, even even news sources that people who 
would watch this show might watch like Fox News, they also are against Putin. Right. And where they do it is they'll say, and I thought about this because I was talking to someone by email, and they found out that I work for Sputnik, and they were a little surprised. And I said, they've been great. They've been the best job I've ever had in journalism, and they've treated me really well, and I've complete freedom of speech. And they said, but Russia. And I said, Russia (laughs) doesn't buy into any woke stuff. And I said, well, Russia doesn't seem to, but that Putin's a real SOB. And most people would just go, well, yeah. So that's the argument that you see on Fox all the time. Maybe Russia's not perfect, but they don't specify where I'm not saying I'm not. I I never said Russia's perfect, but I say Russia is a great country and the policies benefit the people. Right. And I don't make random accusations against this leadership or Vladimir Putin and just say, well, he's an SOB. And then what you should do when someone says that is go, well, why do you say that? Right. Why are you saying that about Putin? And then they'll repeat something. And almost every case that I've noticed, it's a lie. They're repeating a lie about Putin. They say, well, uh, he kills his political getting, opponents. Right. You're getting what? further in the conversation with these people than I do, because it usually, oh, come on, man, you know this, and you know that's like, I don't know. What evidence are you talking about? Where are you getting this from? People who go to those type of arguments, Lee, are low information people who uh, just aren't engaging their brains at all. Well, I would say 99% of the public, by that definition, is low information people. Yes. And uh, part of the idea is putting out factual information. Let me me ask you a general question about journalism, because we talk about the practice of journalism a lot, Jason, because of my citizen journalism school and the work you do at Crowdsource the Truth. Uh, I see a lot of people get nostalgic about journalism, and they'll say something like, well, we used to have a a good press. And let me say, so anybody who's nostalgic about the history of journalism, you're you're fooling yourself. Do you know what we have now? I would say this is the best era in the history of mankind for journalism. Now, allow me to justify that, because it's shocking when I say something like that to many people. They go, this era? Yes. Because 50 years ago, what we can say for sure is journalism had no practical competition. 50 yeah, no years ago. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Well, just no independent. It was just either like New York Times, ABC, NBC, and that's it. And as I'm, I'm preparing to move to D.C. in this fall, I, I'd like to be there for the election, but we're, we're, we're working on it. Uh, I'm putting together my video stuff. And I was thinking, you know, even 10, 20 years ago, even a few years ago, right now, the video production capabilities a person has, it used to be you needed a TV truck. If you wanted to cover a press conference, you'd have to have a TV satellite truck and something to receive it. Now I need a a phone, a phone. A phone for 600 bucks will stream video. And
and that never existed before. It used to be that if you wanted to publish your views so people could read them across the country, you needed access to a printing press. And so we used to have practically monopoly because of technology. Because again, a lot of people like like to diss technology. But technology means that the New York Times, Washington Post, ABC, CNN, CBS don't have a monopoly anymore. And I'm going to ask, let me ask you, do you think journalism was better when it was controlled by monopoly? No. And just think about that question broadly. It doesn't even make sense. How would a monopoly be better? So I would say journalism is not, is, is, there are plenty of problems. But now, if you don't like it, you can start your own news channel. And even though it might get censored, you can find someplace else that won't be censored. Yeah. Competition. So what do you think about, I, I would say we're at the most competitive era in the history of journalism, not in terms of money, but in terms of sources. You have more voices to listen to. What say you, Jason? I think you're absolutely right. Certainly crowdsource the truth would not exist without that. And uh, I spend less time. I mean, I don't even have cable or any kind of. I don't ever turn on the TV because because you don't have to, and because right. they are not great sources of info. Right, right. I'm watching it just to see what other people are being told and and that kind of thing. But I mean, even that, I'm just looking at it on YouTube. And so I think it's important for people not to mythologize. Among things, I'll put it like this. Look at the reporting on the JFK assassination. And the people were skeptical of it. As soon as JFK was killed, there was a huge amount of public skepticism about the Warren Commission report. And the Mm -hmm. systemic problems were obvious. The fact that Dulles was on the Warren Commission, a lot of people said, wait, Dulles was an enemy personally of JFK. Why see the guy to investigate it? And the yeah, public I mean, it's like, had huge. Yeah, go ahead. If Trump got assassinated and Peter Strzok was the lead investigator or something like that. Yeah, good point. That's a great way to put it. But there was no media. They covered it like it was a conspiracy theory. They, they coined the phrase or popularized the phrase conspiracy theorist to try to you know discredit anybody who was fighting against the official narrative. Okay, so let's take a break, Jason. We got the great Tyler Nixon coming up with us in the last half hour of today's episode of The Backstory. Backstory and on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now, great friend of the show, Tyler Nixon. Hey, Tyler, how are you doing? Good to be with you, hey, Tyler, on the backstory, as always. Jason, good to be with you. Hi. Now, Tyler, welcome. We've, we haven't talked to you since the story about 
Mark Zuckerberg on Joe Rogan talking about the visit he was paid by the FBI, telling him to suppress the story. I, mean, I want to be accurate. They didn't tell him to suppress the story. They just implied it, that he should do it. And now anyone who's been following this story for a couple of years, I mean, by story, I mean that what the FBI and the courts did, I would say to Roger Stone, showed that the, the people who have the wrong political views are not going to be treated fairly by the FBI, by the courts. Do you, did you learn that lesson in the way Roger Stone was treated? You're a friend of Roger's, Tyler. What did you learn from Roger Stone's treatment at the hands well, of government? You know, for years I had a wary eye towards uh, towards prosecutors, towards law enforcement generally. Um, you know, the prosecution of the drug war had really soured me. Um, you know, I was when I was younger, I was uh, you know support the blue. The cops are trying to keep it, you know, keep a the thin blue line. Such and but you know when I when I saw it play out, how it plays out. And the ruthlessness, and frankly, the uncouth, and the uh, une- the lack of ethics amongst so many of these prosecutors and cops too, um, yeah. who will get on the stand and just absolutely lie their their you know what's off their tails off. Uh, prosecutors who will pursue people they know are innocent, and and will will withhold exculpatory information to the point some have been yeah. there's if you have been prosecuted, if not disbarred, um, and certainly now that you've introduced that we've introduced on top of that. The uh, political taint. I mean, this is the most dangerous tr- uh, ground we could possibly tread on as a as a free society or, or purportedly free society, because there, you know that's right. that's the only venue we have within the system uh, for for attaining justice or even the possibility of justice. And and they're going after that. They're d- destroying that. It's like what's left? Why bother? I mean, then you're in a total totalitarian state, uh, uh, you know, yeah. dictatorship that is run by. People who are just as ruthless and don't care. I mean, with these, it just amazes me how approximate to the, and I hate to, you know, I know Godwin's law, but but to the Nazis and to the Stalinists and to the, or the Bolsheviks and to the Maoists, these tactics are, I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't have to be a jackboot on your neck, although it's reaching that stage for them to basically, you know, the, the tactics they use in terms of fabricating complete stories out of thin air to frame innocent opponents and adversaries and to propagandize the entire public to totally co-opt all or, or mainstream or main media outlets uh, to perpetuate the, these lies and to confuse and disinform the larger public um, while they're corrupt beyond belief behind the scenes. I mean, this is the hall, these are hallmarks of uh, dictatorships, just completely a totalitarian uh, governments in the past, and people need to be aware of this. And I and I was thinking about Zuckerberg, who is a, I mean, one of the a more slippery, uh, sleazy, in my opinion, person I, I, <laughs> I have yet to see um, in, in in that entire industry. Because I mean, it, it's such a joke. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about what law, law team or what group of uh, you know slippery hair splitters came up with this response? Oh, they came to us and said, you know. There's there's uh, you know, there's bad information out there. Oh, and you just assumed you just assumed it was the it was the Hunter Biden story. Right. You know, so where right. did that come from? Number one. Number two, I hear people say, well, you know, we need to see the FBI's uh, report. No, we need to see what, what what was said to Zuckerberg. What was and as if Zuckerberg personally met with any FBI agents. Give me a break. Right. He would have done everything through intermediaries. So he's totally removed from it. And you can see right. his he's him trying to create his wiggle room as though. 
oh, well, you know, I just, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's just, a, it's like purposeful Keystone cops. The FBI will say, well, we never said it was, it was, you know, the Russian, the Hunter Biden story. We were just talking generally. And then, of course, Zuckerberg turns around and says, oh, well, the FBI told us. So nobody can be, you know, pinned down as to who's liable or who's culpable for this. Uh, you know, You're these people- absolutely right about that, Tyler. You're the first person I've heard to say that. Everybody else is, is rushing to air with a story about how Zuckerberg is revealing the FBI. Everything he said is so lawyery squishy and not under oath. And, hmm. uh, you know, he said, well, you know, we have it on notice that something like that is going to happen again. He literally said nothing, but it can be yeah. interpreted any way that's useful. And that's that's definitely a sort of a, I think, a designed soft disclosure. Yeah, they wanted people to lawyer. know that that they wanted to sort of let people know that this went on and in order to give it some sort of air of credibility, as if they were running well, around talking about Russian disinformation their versus culpability. Yeah, he was distancing himself from it. He's saying, "Well, hey, look, we didn't do it. It was the FBI." And the FBI is going to say, "Well, wait a minute, we didn't tell him this, that, the other." And it's just a bunch of lawyers sitting around arguing about what was said. Right. And, and, but mainly it, it, it serves, it serves multiple purposes that are, it, you know, purport or on the surface seem to be at cross purposes in the sense that, well, okay, the FBI obviously doesn't want to be assigned blame for suppressing the Hunter Biden's laptop story. So even though Zuckerberg's revealing that they went around and were purposefully, you know, uh, trying to get the tech people to suppress information coming out, um, that lends credibility to more their claim of being generalized. So in other words, yeah. we weren't running around right. talking about Hunter Biden. Right. We were talking about right. Russian right. disinformation, right. you know, and it, so it's admitted, but, but not admitted really, you know? Right. So it's very slippery. Yeah. These people are, I mean, they are, they're so, the sophistry and the um, it's, it's really diabolical how they come up with these things. I mean, it's just like, God, you people are really just, I mean, the most slithery sort of charlatans and so well practiced yeah. at it, the way they, the way they design these little um, uh, sort of uh, means of deceiving in a, w with what appears to be being transparent and disclosing things. And mm -hmm. I'll go further on that, Tyler, because I don't think this is about, quote, the Hunter Biden laptop story, close quote. I think it was about the Biden evidence of a crime by Joe Biden, evidence of Joe Biden receiving a payment. That's the definition of corruption. And Biden's denied it. But the laptop story provided hard evidence. Do you agree that the Biden laptop actually what it did was provided hard evidence? Uh, or as people like to say in, you know, in the law, the thing that you like is paper. You like receipts. You like evidence on paper. And yeah. by revealing the emails, I think it provided evidence of a crime by Joe Biden. And what the FBI was actually covering up was that crime. What say you, Tyler? Well, and, and moreover, I mean, you would think that's sort of like limited hangout kind of thing where it's they, they want to make it about quote, a laptop or about the lascivious junk on there rather than saying this isn't right. And you're, you're totally correctly. It's all about the Hunter Biden laptop. Hunter, but what does that mean? What is Hunter Biden laptop? What that he's, he's been, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, defiling underage okay, girls right. or that he's been doing, you know, weighing tons of crack on camera. No, <laughs> it's about the, it's about the Joe Biden massive tre tre uh, treacherous treasonous corruption and self self dealing and selling our country out to the communist Chinese, to our, our biggest adversary. 
and and shaping foreign policy and and major governmental decisions and even uh, 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 policies around around Joe Biden's personal fortune and his son keeping himself out of prison for all these uh, dealings that he's done. And that's the story. But, you know, they would rather have it be about Hunter Biden and his laptop. No, that's just that's just the vessel. You know, I mean, it's honestly that's it's a joke, but they've managed to uh, they managed to whip it up into that to where it can be just called Hunter Biden's laptop as though, oh, we're just probing Hunter Biden's personal life. He should be able to do what he wants. Right now. Give me a break. This guy. I mean, I cannot believe having gone to high school, grown up with him, spent plenty of time with him in my life that I, I would that he would be. To this, that's what drugs must do. It must just gut whatever soul you once had on that level. You know, the doing crack every single day. You know, you just lose your, you lose any soul you had because I mean, I didn't think he was the type. I mean, I didn't particularly get a warm feeling like he was any kind of, uh, uh, you know, paragon of of uh, patriotism or anything like that. But I never thought he'd just sell our country down the river like this for just cash. You know, hand over fist. And well, that's certainly that exactly what he's done. What drugs? Isn't that exactly what drugs do, though, Tyler? I mean, we hear about people get addicted to heroin or crack or whatever, sell their car, steal their parents. I had a friend whose teenage son became involved in heroin, stole his mother's Mercedes, sold it for 5000 bucks. Yeah. Well, I mean, Hunter Biden had, I mean, he could have just been a, a sort of uh, under the, beneath the radar lobbyist with Old Acre and Biden and made plenty of money enough to buy as much crack as he could ever smoke in this life. So it's not that- $10,000 It's the big guy. Well, I mean, if he was spending according to what his, he's scaling up, in other words, based on what he yeah, was marginal making. Marginal propensity to consume crack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. Probably the, 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 high, the high life wasn't necessarily the drugs. That was the cheapest part of it. But it was also, I think the, you know, let's face it, it was the, the, uh, the overhanging obligation, number one, from the big guy, and number two, for, for basically funding the rest of the family. I mean, he was the sugar daddy or sugar brother for, for their family. I mean, every one of them, from uh, Jimmy, I'm sure Frank and, and their offspring, all, uh, you know, and probably, and of course, uh, Bo and um, uh, Haley, you know, like, they're probably all relying on Hunter to bring in the money. And that's why I always saw it when Bo was alive. I thought, okay, well, here, I can see how this is sh- shaking out when I knew that Hunt was uh, doing uh, lobbying. First of all, he was MBNA America. Uh, I still have his business card, actually. I'm like, I, I used to think to myself, this guy can't, I mean, he can barely spell. He can barely write. How, what the hell is he doing is these high-powered, high-level companies that don't hire just anybody. And of course, you know, I mean, the question kind of answers itself. Um, and I used to think, I see that, but I, then I realized when Bo started running and, and Hunter was not involved so much in the political side, but was Mr. Hedge Fund, Mr. Uh, whatever, Ukrainian, uh, you know, pipeline company or whatever, I, I knew he was going to be the money guy. He was going to be the finance guy who could run around and, and do all the shadiness and Bo would be, you know, doing his usual walking on water act in Delaware. Well, so, Well, and, and what you're talking about, Tyler, there's actually evidence of that on the laptop, too. Am I correct that Hunter Biden said something in one email? I forget exactly what he said, but basically what he implied was that he was sick of taking care of the family and not getting credit for it because he was bringing money in to the family. You remember that? No question. That's exactly what was revealed and, you know, or confirmed, at least for those who had any doubts about it, that uh, that he would be they all of them would come to him. I need, you know, this. tuition paid this semester for, you know, my daughter, whoever I need, uh, this and such rent paid. And this is, such, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, and he said, yeah, I'm getting sick of this. I'm just being treated like some cash machine and I'm having to do all kinds of uh, far flung stuff. And 
you know, with the, the big guy always, uh, you know, in my, and I think it was when, um, when he attained the vice presidency, because I mean, Joe, their, their entire existence, the hunters, uh, the hunters, the Bidens, uh, I, I, uh, still am looking, writing, having a draft of a book, um, about Biden and the Biden family, which would be called political animals because that's what they are. And they exist through that lens, and that's all they ever think about, and it's all that ever consumes them. There's no other considerations. It's always, 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 every single move they make in life is filtered through the the uh, uh, sort of the the uh, calculus of their political viability or whatever, how it affects their political or other connections. And but it, it's always been about Joe Biden running ultimately for president. And so when I think he became vice president, and then wasn't going to run in 2016. You see, that's where Hunter started to take the nose up. And then Hunt, uh, excuse me, Bo died the previous year. So it was like everything just fell apart in terms of his any incentives for him to hold it together. And then he just went, of course, hog wild, just crazy for a year of of just binging and completely out of control. Um, and so when Joe, I guess, started decided to jump in it again, or or that you know it was it was coming down to where he was going to be the the establishment Democrat to hold it together and to defeat Trump. Um, you know, once again, Hunter had to swing. I mean, and, and the stakes were even larger. So, I mean, they were cutting probably even bigger deals. I mean, $80,000 diamonds being handed over. Who knows? This is, I mean, the stuff that was on those lap on that laptop is what we can see. Who knows what kind of offshore hidden accounts? I mean, I, I'm sure it is staggering the level of corruption because they certainly had enough willing stooges and dupes around them who yeah. would jump in and be part of their little, uh, whatever influence peddling or, I mean, you know, sellout scheme that they would come up with as long as there was enough money involved. And I always say consider the title. Sorry, I think you should consider the title behind the eight ball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, eight ball, that's small change. Are you kidding me? How about behind sorry. the quarter yeah, ounce yeah. <laughs> or the uh, ounce no, or something so, or whatever? Now, so I think say that, <laughs> excuse me, the cover up is still continuing because now yeah. that we know for sure that it was not Russian disinformation, but that the laptop was real and hundreds. I've seen no journalists, no mainstream. You could say, well, I was fooled at the time, but now every mainstream journalist who writes for the New York Times or Washington Post or who does reports for CNN, no one has picked up the story. No yeah. one's looking in, running down the facts about, you. you talk about, well, we only see what's on the laptop. A, a good reporter, if they want to, would start to run down things and, and find out what, because there's obviously evidence of this somewhere. There's, yeah. You can't. Well, I mean, you got to think. Much money. <clears throat> yeah, go, go ahead, Tom. Well, I mean, you, you know, you got to think about it. Like, first of all, it reveals that. One of, it reveals two things, how this has been handled. Number one, the depth of. of uh, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, sort of, uh, gosh, incest, incestuous relationships between me, these media, the New York Times, these mainstream outlets, and the Democrat Party, and of course, you know, the Biden regime being its its front thing right now. Um, and you see just like how many people are truly sold out where it used to be subtle influence. Now it's just like, forget it. We are absolutely the apparatchiks of this propaganda uh, juggernaut. And then the other aspect, the flip side of it is the level of intimidation, I think, that's been sort of has been instilled um, with the, you know, just what's going on with they don't even have to prosecute the people going after the Hunter Biden or, or they're involved with Hunter Biden's you know, disclosure on the laptop. The fact that they've gone after innocent people 
uh, as they have just regular Americans who were happened to be at the Capitol on January 6th alone says to would right. say to an intrepid reporter who isn't just completely, uh, you know, doesn't give a crap and is willing to, you know, go. And in fact, the Julian Assange treatment of Julian Assange as well. But it, but so you have, to, you know, you have sort of you have the ones who are aren't completely sold down the river as partisan apparatchiks for the, the regime are probably intimidated. You know, there aren't a lot of brave journalists out there that are willing to take those risks that are, that are working in mainstream outlets. Um, and, you know, frankly, I guess our people on our side, we have we have people running it down. But I mean, they're obviously they they are admittedly. Uh, biased, so then it's, you know it's sort of written off in, in that sense, but um, which is disturbing to say the least. I mean, uh, it's just I mean this this I just looked at uh, an article of the military military dot com. I guess it is that uh, this marine, an ex marine guy's fifty six years old, and all he did was swing a I guess a a a pole like a a flagpole he brought down on you know and happened to hit a cop. They're asking for seventeen years for this guy. He, that is a death sentence. That is a death sentence for a 56 year old guy like that. I mean, this is sick. And and the and the corruption that runs. I mean, it's like I said. Well, I guess they're getting to the bottom of January 6. They don't have time to worry about the current president's massive, demonstrable corruption. That is, I mean, they, you know, they're they're too busy fabricating complete nonsense fiction out of a single day's event that that isn't even ongoing. It's not like it's a current you know thing. Whereas this Biden stuff, I mean, this is as current as you get. I mean, they have all kinds of deals that, uh, that he's he's uh, going to be cashing in on. In fact, the strategic uh, oil, petroleum reserves, uh, how, how many billion, millions of gallons did they send it? Did Biden's first act was to sell them to the Chinese company connected to uh, the Chinese uh, petroleum company connected to Hunter. I mean, it's like, my God, if that isn't a payoff, I don't know what is. And you've seen people lose their political position and even job for what's called the appearance of propriety, the appearance of propriety. Impropriety. impropriety. Forgive yeah. me. Yeah. 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 Forgive me oh, for yeah. misspeaking. The appearance of impropriety, which is something that looks bad. So the Biden stuff is the definition of looks bad. Even on the basis of the appearance, I would say Biden should be in trouble if we have a fair system. But the proof that we don't have a fair system is that he's faced no investigation. But let me say on an optimistic note, I'm seeing more politicians than ever who are willing to speak about it. Now, by the way, more politicians than ever is still a small number. People like Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene. Are you seeing a, a new generation of politicians who seem to have more huspa to bring up these issues than ever before? Tyler Nixon. Oh, and I'm, yes, and I'm absolutely relying on them. <laughs> I mean, honestly, and it's it's great. It's great that it's women too. I mean, Lauren Boebert out here in Colorado, and you can see by the amount of acid and bile that is thrown uh, by way of these women, with Marjorie Taylor Greene obviously being recently swatted twice. I mean, this is just the leftist low life tactics, the most despicable sorts of. I mean, just you know, they can never operate on in the open on a fair level playing field of ideas. No, it's got to be every sleaze ball. Uh, tactic yeah. that they can come up with to to just kneecap and Outwardly. destroy their opponents. And I'll yeah. tell you this. Um, yeah, I do see I do see there are people who are not going to be cowed by the establishment by their own. And frankly, I mean, Bobert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, to a lesser extent, Matt Gates and Jim. I mean, they're Jim Jordan. They are at odds, frankly, with Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. And, you know, this is this is the battle, as I've said before, the battle for the future of the country and which way we're going to go is not Democrats versus Republicans. It is the Republican rhinos versus the 
the Patriots, um, because the Democrat Party is done. It has completely been purged of any moderate voices whatsoever, uh, and it's just never. I, I don't. I don't see it recovering. I mean, I, it, it would take generational changes, but it's so now uh, steeped in its own uh, uh, demagogic, militant dogma and rhetoric. I just. It's like these people have been cult-like indoctrination in it. Um, and frankly, it's been a yep. corrupt organization since it was part, you know, the KKK and you name it. I mean, so it's really just it's it's finally, I guess, just exposed for what it is and in, in, in bright technicolor. And Tyler, we've seen recently the people who had Ashley Biden's diary played guilty. And I think they were forced to play guilty to bury that story. But you made an argument, uh, Jason, Tyler made an argument on this show that he doesn't think that the. You you think people are misinterpreting the statement by Ashley Biden that she'd taken showers with her father. And actually, the argument that Tyler made has actually convinced me. I'm convinced a lot of people, it's shocking to hear, but I'm convinced that's not what most people think it is, Jason. In other words— What do you mean? Well, I want, to, well, I want Tyler, Tyler to make the case himself. Yeah, you can do it better than I. Okay, so I know that I know that Ashley Biden would never speak ill of her father um, in a way that would in any way harm him, much less write it down. I mean, I, I just I know you, that you've I mean, met her, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I she was she was not as uh, prominent. She was usually down at Pan Thai with Jimmy Tigani, cutting out cocaine on the uh, uh, on the the um, you know bar counter in there. high school. <laughs> Whereas, oh no, this, was, this is no, this was in her probably twenties, mid twenties, late twenties, thirties. Wow. wow, this is all well after college and all this. This is adults, and um, okay. So that being said, I felt when I and I read, I I managed to find somewhere where someone had published it, and I just like you know curiosity got the better of me, and so I I thought I just want to you know kind of skim through this and see what 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 she's saying, like what where her head is, like what does this reveal about the inner workings of the family, and. And she and, said, and Tyler, Tyler, let me just ask, since you said you know her, and, and you, did she have a re re reputation for being, shall we say, friendly at the time? Promiscuous, uh, what she said. Yeah, promiscuous? well, I mean, I, not a, you know, I mean, no more than the other uh, Coke girls, whatever girls who, you know, I mean, yeah. Whoa. Girls who do coke, you so, know, yes. late night. I mean, they get a certain reputation. I don't, but she wasn't like she wasn't like sleeping around town like the worst of the. I mean, that I've certainly heard of. Of course, I, I'm not. I, I wasn't. Know. Yeah, but let me say this real quick. After, she said she I'm was, and, and what I felt was she was in recovery when she was writing this uh, diary. So she was trying to like work out her demons, and she talked about her over her being very hypersexual when she was from a very young age, right? And she didn't say that was anything to do with any of her family members. I think it was probably just the, 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 at the time at which she grew up during then. And what she said was, you know, taking showers with my father, probably inappropriate. And the way I got it is that he would be showering and she would go in with him. And she was saying I was probably inappropriate doing that. That's why that's how I read it, because and people have taken that as Joe Biden's blessing his daughter. Look, Joe Biden's a whack job, but I, I don't think he would ever go that. I mean, you know, he, he likes to sniff hair and he's kind of a weirdo. But not with his well, daughter. That's I mean, the point is that he doesn't have normal boundaries. I don't know yeah. that anybody's necessarily taken it to the ultimate uh, end as far as what exactly happened. Let me there, say, but it's let me just... say, plenty of people have Jason. I've seen people actually. I've seen people do the thing. You, you see that on Twitter sometimes, where there's a graphic, and they put a quote on it, and it's not. And people say that Ashley Biden said 
she was molested. She never said that. Yeah. She never yeah, said she was molested. Right. No, I, I mean, and here's the thing. It's like, what it, 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 what's a joke? It's like, who cares? I mean, his crimes concerning our country or what he's doing in right. our country are Way far worse. more profound exactly. and, and, and consequential than anything. So this is just like another another ability for them to run with, allow this to be put out there. And it sounds so far-fetched that it just t- sort of discredits anyone. Well, hang who on would, a second, because we're getting a little lost in the weeds. To me, the story right? is what they want us this to is, do. <laughs> right. This is personal property of the Bidens that let's call it inconsequential. Why is the FBI going to collect oh, it? Oh, no, but yeah, well, that's, it's abandoned property. I mean, there's no, there's no, I mean, why they go right. after it? There is no, there is absolutely no legitimate legal or any good sort of um, law enforcement explanation for this. It's not even, even if but it that, was a, a theft, it's not a crime. It's not a federal crime. This is Biden's personal right. yeah, stop. I'm saying being, if it um, was stolen, it should be the local police in the town where it was stolen. But the fact that they're utilizing the FBI causes me to think there is something in there that's very important that they don't. No, want no, this is out. just this is just something that that they are using as their inroad to slam James O'Keefe to 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 do what they did with Roger, which is to essentially just warp point. all the facts around the case in order to come up with some bogus indictment. And just, you know, let's face it, prosecution is punishment. You know, if James O'Keefe is right. tied up in a criminal prosecution for two years, he's not going to be bashing and finding out what, you know, not bashing, yeah. but just, you know, uh, exposing the Democrats and, and what scum there. And yes. Tyler, we're out of time, but a great conversation, as usual, with a great Tyler Nixon. Jason, great guest hosting, co-hosting. And thanks to Andrew Arthur for appearing with us in the first hour. But a great conversation, as usual, with Tyler Nixon. And also, thanks for the great calls. And welcome to the family, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow on The Backstory.